0: Revelation chapter 13, I don't know if tonight we're going to have enough time to get through the entire chapter, um, because the two beasts that we're going to meet in Revelation 13 really go hand in hand, um, but we're going to get as far as we can tonight, and then, uh, if there's a problem, if there's a, um, if there's some left over for next week, then we'll, we'll, we'll pick up where we leave off next week, but at least for this week, I want us to start with Revelation chapter 13, um, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word that I'm reading, and if you let it, it will change your life. Revelation 13 verse 1 says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon for he had been, he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given over it it, over every tribe and people, and language, and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, because everyone whose name was not written in, before the foundation of the world in the book of life for the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be captive, into captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword must he be slain. Here is a call for endurance and faith of the saints. Whoa pause here as we pray. Father, I pray that these words uh, would not captivate us in the wrong way, that we would not get sidetracked by the spectacle and miss the principle, that we would not get distracted by the details and miss what's most important. Father, turn our hearts toward you this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Revelation chapter 13 begins with a beast rising out of the sea. Now, to really get the picture, you've got to go back into chapter 12, because at the end of chapter 12, the dragon is standing on the coastline right before the sea. It's almost as if the dragon is calling out to his cohorts. You remember in chapter 12, he's trying to get the woman, and he can't get the woman. The woman is rescued by God, taken into the wilderness for 42 months. And if he's taken there, he's trying to get to her. He, he finds her. He rushes, water rushes out of his mouth, but the earth opens up and swallows up the water to protect the woman. He's trying to get the woman, but the woman is just beyond his reach. And so he turns away from the woman and toward her descendants and says, I'm now going to attack them. And it's almost as if He is calling in reinforcements in order to do battle with the descendants of the woman. And that's where 13 opens. He stands at the sea, the beast, the the dragon does, and out of the sea comes a beast. I said there were two beasts in Revelation 13, and they go hand in hand. They play off of each other. Right now, let's look at the first beast. He comes up out of the sea, and he has ten horns and seven heads. And on each one of the horns is a diadem. Remember, there's two words for crown in the Greek. One is Stephanos. That's the victor's crown. The Olympic champion winning the race gets that crown. But the diadem is the crown of royalty. It's the crown of authority. It's the crown of reign. This beast has ten diadems. Now, is he really the one in charge? Well, in a sense, yes. You remember that this, this world is under the dominion of Satan. And so in a sense, yes, this beast has the authority over this world. But in another sense, no, he doesn't. Here, let me show you in the text. Uh, verse two, at the end of verse two, and to it, to this beast, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Look down a little bit later. Verse four, and they worshiped, the whole world, worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast. Verse five, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority. Do you see what's happening here? Keep going. Verse seven, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. Do do you see? This beast is not the master. This beast has been given authority, and in one sense that authority comes from Satan. He is is the one who Satan is using. Satan is, is controlling. Satan is determining what this beast is going to do, but at the same time, there's a sense that all of this couldn't have come from Satan. How can this beast defeat the saints? Well, I'll tell you how. He was given authority. You see, his authority is within certain restrictions. And so once again, we have the almighty God who is still almighty, still on his throne, still reigning, but he allows certain evil things to take place in order that his will will be accomplished throughout this book. We see it time after time after time. God is allowing evil to happen so that his good will ultimately happen. It's like you don't know how good it's, how good the sunshine is until you've had a lot of rain. You don't know how nice it is to go to work until you have a few weeks where you can't go to work or to the store or to the park or anywhere else. Do you see what I'm saying? Sometimes it takes bad things to help us realize how good the good things are. And in the book of Revelation God has ordained it so that his will is accomplished through those who are directly opposing it. It's an amazing truth. God doesn't need your acquiescence in order to do his will through you. Oh, but I sure don't want to be on the wrong side. I don't want to be on God's bad side, not submitting to him, but instead doing my own will and in the process fulfilling his will, just on the wrong side. This is what we see in this beast. He's subservient. He's doing the will of another. In one way, he's doing the will of Satan directly, but indirectly, he's also doing the will of God like Pharaoh does the will of God with a hard heart, not letting the people of Israel go. We see that same hardness, that same uh, opposition to God's will in this beast, and yet all the time we figure out that in the grand scheme of things, this is all part of God's will. Isn't God amazing that he can take his enemies and do his will through them? That's pretty impressive. We can pull that off from time to time. I think of times where, uh, you know, somebody is doing something a particular way and you, you don't want to, you, you don't really want that to happen. You need something else to happen. So you work with them in an indirect way to get them to do what you need them to do. Maybe you get them out of the way by having them do something else. Or maybe you, you tell them to do something knowing that they're going to do it a certain way and you plan for that and you work around that and or you get it the the way you want it by putting a bug in their ear in a special way i know um for for kids sometimes you can get them to do what you want by promising them something that they want yeah you can you can play the xbox when your room's clean you see what i'm saying sometimes sometimes we're able to do that That doesn't always work, but with God, it always works because with God, his will, his plan, his purposes are from eternity past declared. And he does what he does to make that will come to pass, even through those who are in his enemies. Back to the text. This is a subservient beast, but that doesn't make him any less frightful, any less scary, any less difficult deal with. He has these ten horns and these seven heads, and he's got these diadems on top of each one of the horns. It appears there's there's a diadem, and this isn't real authority. This is presumed authority. This is authority that's given to him in some ways, but he's taking that authority that doesn't really belong to him. Who really should be wearing the diadem? Jesus Christ. He's the victor. He is the king of kings. He is the lord of lords. He's the one that should be wearing the diadem. Instead, these are the diadems of a pretender. Some try to identify these with particular uh, uh, emperors who have gone by the heads and the horns each represent. So no, don't worry about that. That's, I think that's reading more into this than what John is intending. What John wants us to see is a terrible beast who is appropriating authority That ultimately belongs to God. He compares this beast, and he makes an interesting thing. He says he's. It was like a leper. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. Interestingly, in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel sees four beasts, and of those four beasts, one of them is like a leopard, one of them is like a bear, one of them is like a lion. The fourth one is even more terrifying than the rest. Maybe he's picturing that. But but when Daniel is seeing this, he's seeing these four rising kingdoms, this one, two, three, four that are coming in history. What John is seeing is the culmination of all of that. Don't think of this as a particular uh, kingdom so much as it is the final kingdom. This is John looking forward and seeing an enemy of the church, that has authority at least has been given authority and will fight against the saints is this does John have Rome in mind in particular mm-hmm. i don't know I, I i can't i can't say that for sure some commentators want to go straight to Rome and say this is all historical some commentators want to say no this is a new world order and in just a few days we'll see it come to pass i i, I don't I think this is something of the likes of which we've never seen, but I can guarantee you this, if we look back in history and we look at the kingdoms that have come before, we can see bits and pieces of it, some a little bit more than others. When that final kingdom comes to power, when that beast rises out of the sea with those seven horn, or seven heads and ten horns and seven or ten diadems on those horns. When we see that happening, we'll recognize it. Maybe we'll see it from heaven looking down maybe we'll see it from earth, participating, not in the worship, not in the adoration of this beast, not in not in, not in in the way that many others will, but maybe we'll be seeing this on the other end as his enemies. I don't know for sure. I do know there's people of God that are gonna suffer because of this beast. We'll get to that in just a minute. There's something else that he describes about this beast. Verse three, one of his heads... And we already talked about the dragon giving his power, his throne, his authority um, to this beast. One of his heads, he says, seemed to have a mortal wound. It looked like one of the heads had been mortally wounded. Now, whether that wound was true, truly mortal, or whether it looked mortal even though it wasn't, that's beyond the point. The point is, he has this wound but its mortal wound was healed. And listen to this. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. There's a point where miracles are a great confirmation of what God is doing, but the miracles themselves support the evidence of God's work. They do not comprise the evidence of God's work. Let me explain what I mean. I know from history, from my own experience, from watching other people, some people have been healed, people that had cancer, and they went to the doctor, and the doctor did an MRI and said, we can't find your cancer, things like that. Some people take that as specific evidence that God has done his work, maybe, but I would count it as circumstantial evidence. Not that I don't believe God can do that. No certain that God can do whatever he wants, he's God. But what I'm saying is, every time you see a miracle, don't immediately attribute it to God. Don't immediately say, oh, God must have done this. This is great. God must be involved in this. This is confirmation. Because he healed this person after I prayed for him, it's confirmation that God has answered my prayer. Well, maybe, maybe it is. In many cases, it is. But in many cases, it's not. It's not. The miracle itself does not comprise the evidence. What's more important is the true evidence, Bible. What has God said? That's the evidence of who he is. The miracles, well, that's nice to have, but that's not our primary evidence. If If the primary evidence that you have for believing in Jesus Christ is the story of his resurrection, that's good so far as it goes. But if the primary evidence you have that Jesus is God is the entire testimony of the scriptures, that is something you can bank on. And to bank on the miracle as opposed to the word of God is to say, I want the extraordinary. I want what looks good. And you, my friend, just like the people right here in Revelation 13, you will be deceived because every miracle doesn't come from God. Many of them do. Many of them don't. Don't stake your faith on a miracle. I think of the Israelites. I told y'all um, uh, uh, that I've been reading in the phone tree message, if you actually heard it, um, some when it came to me, I couldn't hear the message and neither could carry. So I don't know how many of you actually got the message by phone tree, but uh, in that message, I talk about the Israelites coming out of Egypt. It's been something that I've read over the past week in my personal Uh, quiet times, and when, when they get to the Red Sea, the Egyptians are following close behind, and they watch as God, the pillar, moves to the other side, sets behind them. They are, they are facing the Red Sea, the Egyptians are coming up from behind, and God moves between them and the Egyptians in order to preserve them, in order to keep them, so that he can do the miracle, right? And we all look at the Red Sea, it's what a great miracle! But what happens immediately after the Red Sea? They get into the wilderness and three days later they haven't had water and they're complaining that Moses has brought them to die in the wilderness because they haven't had anything to drink. Wait, wait, wait. Didn't just at the Red Sea just a couple of days ago? You see, when you bank your faith on the miracle, you lose that faith because it's not in something sturdy. Oh yeah, the miracle is great. The miracle is wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But the miracle is part of the evidence. It's not the fullness of evidence. The fullness of evidence is in the scriptures. And when we look here first, then the miracle just confirms what we already know. These people look for the extraordinary things. The beast does the extraordinary things. Keep going because there's there that that's going to keep appearing. That's, that's one of those things that John keeps working in to this book. Keep an eye out for that. Because the miracle doesn't always mean God is actually working. Sometimes the miracle is a counterfeit. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. Did you see that? Did you see what happened? Oh man, we gotta, we gotta tell some, but man, did you, look, He's got that wound and he's healed. There's no way he should have lived through that. And they begin to worship. They they marveled. They're amazed. And then they worship. Verse four. And they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast. The implication here is that the dragon is the one who healed the beast. And they worshiped the beast. Interesting, interesting thing here. They worshiped the beast. More problems, it stopped recording, so we'll try this again. They were worshiping the beast because of this incredible miracle that had happened. They marveled, then they worshiped. And they say something interesting when they worship. They say, who is like the beast? Who is like the beast? Well, who is like the beast? Hmm. Who is like the beast? Isn't that... Psalm 89, verse 6, for who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? And then it begins to describe the works that he does, how he rules the sea and how he, he stills the waves, how he crushed his enemies and scattered them in the praise of him going throughout the earth. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. You know what he's saying here? No one compares to God. And yet, Revelation 13, just like the beast. Who can compare to the beast? Don't you think? Don't you think they've messed this up a little bit? I think they have. You see, they, they put their trust in the miracle. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 42 months. Same amount of time that the woman's protected in the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? 42 months. That's that's three and a half years. That's that's, that's the second half of a seven-year period. It's almost as if God is saying to us, hey, you, hey, listen, I'm repeating this over and over and over again. I want you to get this very clear. This is not just a time of God's wrath against his enemies. It's a time of the enemies giving their wrath against God's people. And we can debate over which of God's people are here. Maybe the church was raptured at the beginning of this period and, and now it's those that have come to faith along the way. Maybe it's maybe it's the church fairly much as a whole. I don't know. I don't know for sure. <laughs> Anybody that tells you they know for sure, well, um, I, yeah, we won't get into that. But what I do know is that this beast is blaspheming God. And as he blasphemes, he opens his mouth utter blasphemies against God. That is a, that's a Hebrew way of saying he begins to blaspheme in such a way that it's going to keep going on for a long time. In fact, 42 months it's going to go on. Blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. This could be read a little bit differently. It could be blaspheming his name, blaspheming his dwelling, and blaspheming those who are in heaven. Maybe it's not just that. Maybe it's Blaspheming his name and where he lives, including those who live there. It's kind of, kind of difficult to read exactly which one's right, so your version may have a little different wording there. Well, what's, what's certainly true is that he is blaspheming in every which way he can possibly think of against God. It was also allowed, verse 7, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Perhaps, perhaps we have been fooled in Western Christianity to thinking that we don't really have to do anything, that God will always protect us. I know another group who used to think that. They're called Jews. They lived in Jeremiah's day in the city of Jerusalem. They used to say things like, Jerusalem will never be captured. This is the city of God. He'll never let it fall into enemy hands. The false prophets were saying that over and over and over again. God will never let destruction happen in this place. Though though the rest of Israel fall, God will protect his holy city. We have nothing to fear. And then in 587, the siege started. By by 586, the Shabav, that day of mourning, Jews today still recognize, still remember with somberness, still recollect the story. By reading the book of Lamentations, God's holy city was destroyed. There are times when evil wins. Never the war, but often the battles. And sometimes it's battle after battle after battle after battle. And this is going to be one of those cases where evil seems to have the upper hand. It's allowed to make war on the saints. This is one of those times where the authority isn't coming from Satan. The authority's coming from God. Now, why would God let this happen? How could God let this happen? I'm going to tell you how. Because it's part of his will. I don't think at this point God is punishing his people. I think God is letting, letting this battle be lost. Because part of his plan is a come from behind victory, if you will. Part of his plan seems to be more than just losing this battle because he will win the war. But for now, the saints are conquered. They're persecuted and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This is a whole bunch of different words to say the same thing. The whole world was subject to the reign of this beast and all who dwell on the earth worship will worship it. Everyone whose name Has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life, a book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Let me just say something about this verse. Your translation may read differently. It's really hard to tell where before the foundation of the earth belongs. It could belong where this version puts it, those whose name are written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. It could be written after the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. It's really hard to tell where to put this phrase. The oldest manuscripts, perhaps the the best ones, put it at the very end. I can tell you this, God from, from eternity past has determined what his will will be. And from eternity past, he has made the plan for the Son, the Lamb of God, to be slain for the salvation of his people. And don't tell me that he didn't know who they were. Don't tell me that, because that certainly can't be true. Spurgeon made the analogy. He says on one side, it's like it's like the door to heaven. Uh, on one side, it says above the door, whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says when you get to the other side of the door, you look back above the door, it says, it says chosen from before the foundation of the world. It's the same door. We are saved by grace through faith. And God has ordained that grace from eternity past. I don't know exactly how it works. How can we choose if God has ordained? I I don't understand that, okay? I'll I'll confess my shortcoming. Maybe I haven't studied hard enough. But I can tell you this, the ones that are his will not bow before this beast, but everyone else will. In other words, to put it a different way, the ones who specifically choose to follow God and do so, are the only ones that will escape the coercive power of this beast. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. <laughs> Seems to be a theme lately. Don. Huh? If anyone is to be taken captive, verse ten says, "To captivity he goes." It's certain. If this beast decides to take someone into captivity, it's done. If anyone is to be slain with a sword, with a sword, must he be slain. If he decides to kill you, you're killed. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Seems to be the one in charge, but he's not, is he? Then we'll close here, the end of verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Now we see why John is showing us this beast. It's not just to give us a terrifying story. It's not to give us a nightmare. He's showing us this beast because he's calling us to patiently endure the trials that come before us. Because if we do not have the kind of faith that can get us through this kind of mess, then we don't have faith at all. And we'll be some of the ones bowing in worship of this pretender, this Antichrist. You see, really, when, when when we look at all of life and and boil it down. We really have one choice to make with our lives. We either worship Christ or we worship Antichrist. We either worship the true Messiah, the one whom God has chosen, whom, whom before the foundation of the world, God had set apart. We choose the one whom God has ordained, who is God in human flesh. We choose the real or we choose the counterfeit that looks real, that has the seemingly mortal wound that's healed, that that does all of these wonderful, miraculous things, and in reality is not who he claims to be. We choose the real or we choose the fake. It's one or the other. And we say, well, I don't really worship anything. Yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. You might think you don't worship, but according to this scripture, you will. You will worship the true or the fake. Let me pray for you. Father, help us to choose the truth. Help us not be caught off guard. Help us not be blinded. Help us not fall into the trap. Father, whether we're alive for this or not, the, the, the truth still speaks into our lives that, that there are distractions, there are traps, there are difficulties that we face, and all of them together all point us to the same truth. Every single one of them points us to the same truth truth. We cannot be ambivalent. We must choose this day whom we will serve. And if we are to serve you, we must do so completely, wholeheartedly, with every fiber of our being. Father, help us serve you. Help us worship you. Help us honor you. Because I've seen the other choice and it's phony. It's counterfeit. It's worthless. So Father, help us serve you, worship you, love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.